Are we live? We are, we are live. live. This is Free Range American. I have some handsome individuals. I'm joined with Marty Scovlin Jr., not senior, executive editor, Coffee or Die, Nolan Peterson, joining us from Ukraine in Tier Schmiak. Simak. Schmiak. Frankenstein. Schmack. Yeah. Schmack. I'm the one ugly one. Yeah. A couple of handsome guys and one ugly one. Yeah, but that mustache, though. It's, I got to compensate somehow, man. It, Hat tip to the mustache. Yeah, that's, a, that's a mean mustache. <laughs> it's the new regs, guys. It's the new regs. And uh, we wanted to jump on real quick. There's some, inter- there's some interesting international things going on. And we've got some subject matter experts to talk about it. And Nolan, this is your first time joining us. I want to like get into your background a little bit. You've got a, you're a, a pretty interesting free-range American. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, let's let's take that as a cue there. Um, Nolan, kind of start us off. You're an Air Force Academy grad, and then you went gallivanting across France for a while before you went and got your 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 war boots on. Yeah. So I graduated Air Force Academy in '04, and then uh, my first first duty, if you want to call it that, was two years of grad school in Paris, France, and. Uh, after that, went back and uh, made the move from living in Paris to living in Columbus, Mississippi for pilot training, <laughs> which is probably the most difficult transition I've ever had in my life. Um, but I got out of pilot training, went in, uh, started flying for Air Force Special Operations, flew an aircraft called the U-28, which a lot of the special ops bros will probably recognize the call sign Draco. And we helped out and... Uh, I had a front row seat to see a lot of really brave Americans out there uh, doing the mission and keeping our country safe. So, you know, after a career as a pilot, you know, I, you know, I did the, the rotations, Iraq and Afghanistan, like we were all familiar with. Uh, But I think every time I came home, I just had this sense, like this, you know, kind of deer in the headlights look when I was trying to explain to my family and friends or anybody about what we were doing in Afghanistan and Iraq and, the reality of the threats that our country was facing. And so when I had the, the chance to leave the military, I thought that pursuing a career as a journalist uh, was another way to serve my country. Because I think, you know, we live in a democracy and it's super important for our citizens to understand why we have a military, what we're doing. And, you know, the fact that there's, there's bad people in the world who want to do our country harm. So I became a journalist when, you know, I, Went the academic route and got a master's degree in journalism, which, you know, I'm not so sure if that was worth it or not. Uh, but anyway, it gave me a good year to kind of catch my breath after being in the military. And then I, uh, you know, worked at some local papers for a while, blew all my savings, went and uh, went to Afghanistan for a bit, did some freelancing for United Press International, came back, saved up some money, sold everything I had in storage and uh, moved to Ukraine when the war started here. And, uh, I, you know, when I came out here, I had an, a notion that this war wasn't being reported on accurately. And man, when I got here, was I ever right? You know, I, you know, I was talking earlier about in 2014, I remember standing on a hilltop in the city of Mariupol, watching a no kidding tank battle go on, you know, like out of that movie Fury, watching tanks literally shooting at each other. And then out there in the front lines under Russian artillery and rocket attacks, I mean, this is a no kidding war on European soil. 
And so I think that, you know, being out here and covering that story are really highlighted for me how important it is to have journalists on the ground with about what's going on in the world because, you know, very often the mainstream media is not doing enough to highlight for Americans what's going on and how serious these threats are uh, that we face in this, this new era of warfare. And I, I think that's something that a lot of people skip over and, and something that you're always great about highlighting, Nolan, is that I think a lot of people have the perception that Europe is at peace and all, all is well in Europe and the problem areas of the world are in, you know, the Mideast or Southwest Asia or somewhere in Africa, right? To a country that nobody can point to. But you're, you're over there and you're, it's like, no kidding, a land war battle going on between two, the two biggest armies in Europe, right? That's accurate? That's accurate. Yeah. I mean, by far, Ukraine and Russia have the biggest militaries in Europe. I mean, I think the number of active duty personnel in Ukraine's military is something like four times that of Germany or the UK or France. So you have two, I mean, most of Ukraine's military hardware dates, hardware dates from the Cold War. So it's not you know, cutting edge stuff. But at a certain point, 200,000 ground troops makes a difference, right? And you have these two countries which are locked in a trench war in eastern Ukraine, the Donbass, about a 250-mile-long front line. They're in World War I-style trenches lobbing artillery at each other every single day. Wow. And I just, you know, after living here for seven years reporting on this conflict, and I try to make the point constantly that it just takes one mistake, you know, one, I call it a Franz Ferdinand scenario for this thing to spiral out of control. And, you know... We've seen in history that when wars spiral out of control, they usually don't stay within the two countries that started them, right? Right, right. So with, uh, a lot of NATO countries in this neighborhood, type. countries like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland, who have long histories of distrust with Russia, I think if this war really escalated, there's a real strong chance NATO could be drawn into it, which therefore means that the United States could conceivably find itself at war with Russia. And that that's a scary thing. There's only one country in the world that poses an existential threat to the United States, and that's Russia. And so I think that we need to be really careful about this. And Ukraine is the place where that could start. And we need to be very aware of what's going on here and do everything we can to not let this war uh, get any bigger. I just hear like so many listeners going like, well, what about China? What about China? <laughs> but no, dude, it's, it's interesting because you're living like this almost Ernest Hemingway, like, pre-World War II, World War II existence and and being over there and like witnessing all this uh, non-U.S. conflict that's going on. Um, and in addition to this like kind of uh, spark that could potentially happen with the, the Russia and Ukraine situation, like, take us back a little bit. Like this has been going on for a long time. Why is this important? And, and why do you think us as Americans should be paying attention to this stuff. And if I could just tack on one more question, if you could just yeah. break it down the most Barney style possible, why does Russia care? Why do they want to be in the Ukraine? Why okay. Do they want the Ukraine? Yeah. I can answer all that in one, one monologue. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, to start sort of like square one in 2014, uh, Ukraine had a revolution to overthrow a, a pro-Russian president named Viktor Yanukovych. And uh, after that, uh, Russia was very unhappy. And this is, again, like right on the tail end of the Arab Spring. So I think that there was a lot of anxiety in Russia that Ukraine, which is probably, you know, culturally one of the closest countries to Russia, they overthrew this corrupt dictator, basically, pro-Russian dictator, buddies with Putin. 
I think there's a lot of anxiety in Russia that that could sort of start a domino chain that could lead to uprisings in Russia. Was that the so Orange Party? The Ukrainian Revolution, um, Russia decided that they had to prove that Ukraine made a, an error, a mistake in turning its back on Russia and turning toward Europe and the United States in a pro-democratic, pro-freedom-loving future. So to punish Ukraine, Russia first invaded Crimea. We all know that you know, the little green men invasion, right? Bunch of troops with heavy weaponry and tanks and stuff just showed up overnight. No, no name tags, no patches. Obviously, it was Russia. They invaded and seized Crimea. And then after that, Russian special forces units engineered a war in eastern Ukraine, trying to make it look like a separatist sort of civil war uprising, but it was an outright Russian sort of unconventional war uh, offensive in eastern Ukraine. Um, so after that happened, Ukraine's military was extraordinarily weak in 2014. They had been, you know, after decades of corruption, after the fall of the Soviet Union, they only could make, they could only muster about 6,000 combat-ready soldiers at the time. So as Russia's unconventional invasion of eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region is what it's called, as that was gaining steam all across Ukraine, and I'm telling you guys, this is the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen. The only comparison I can draw in my life to what I saw in 2014 was our country after 9-11. And that was a very brief moment of unity, a common desire to serve and get back and get revenge for what happened to us. But in Ukraine in 2014, and it was like that, you know, exponentially higher actually, because you had an invasion force moving across their land. And so young Ukrainians, university students, baristas, waiters, you name it, man, they all grabbed their dad's Kalashnikovs, formed these irregular militias, and they went out there with no military training, supported by volunteers who raised money on Facebook and Twitter to supply them with food, body armor, you name it. They went out there and they pushed back this Russian unconventional offensive until the point that Russia's operation was such a failure that to save face, Russia had to invade with its own regular troops, its own armor. They had Russian fighter jets shooting down Ukrainian jets. They had Russian armor shooting from within Russian territory into Ukraine. And it wasn't until Russia openly invaded eastern Ukraine in the end of summer 2014 that the war sort of locked into this static stalemate in the east, which is what it is now. It became this trench war. And neither side is trying to really take back ground or anything like that. They're just basically staying put for the sake of not being the side that backs down first. And the war became that way in about, I think it was about February of 2015, the war really locked along its current front lines. So that's, I think, so, that's so crazy to yeah. me with everything that's got going on in modern warfare that we could go back to trench fighting. Yeah, and it's insane. Like, that's the thing that just blows my mind about this this war. And, I, you know, all the times I've been out there, you got like World War One style trenches, but at the same time, you've got drones, sophisticated electronic warfare capabilities. You know, the Ukrainians turn their cell phones on within the instance you got... You know, you got Russian artillery plopping down in your position. Right. And so it's just like this blend of sort of high-tech modern warfare with these really old school techniques. And so I think, you know, you know, one reason this war is important for America is because it's a case study and the way we're going to have to fight a war against a near-peer adversary like China or Russia, right? And like, I think one, as a pilot, for example, one thing I think we don't talk about enough is that at some point, all this technology cancels its way itself out. And so some of our pilots need to be able to learn how to like using their eyeballs, ballistically lob a missile or a bomb on a target. 
if all the GPS goes out and all our systems don't work? Or how do we talk to guys on the ground if we lose comms? I mean, do we know how to use like signal mirrors and shit like old yeah, school right. style yeah. to do that? I don't know. But I think from Ukraine, a lot, you know, the Ukrainians face the modern Russian threat and they improvised a lot of very creative solutions to some of these modern problems, which often devolved into very simple ways of making war that I think maybe in our military, we've sort of kind of lost that edge in some ways because we've gotten so used to all of our technology, having air superiority, having ISR whenever we want it, right? You know, having like a 24-hour surveillance before we kick down a door, like those things don't exist in a war against Russia or China. And I think that that's one lesson the Ukrainians have learned. And I think we have a lot to glean, uh, glean from that. Well, and that's kind of like one of the interesting like side stories there as far as like how uh, Nolan, you and I met um, almost two years ago now in Germany for a major training exercise called Saber Junction. And that was kind of the, the, the through line of that was military leaders saying, you know, to the Air Force pilots, to the guys on the ground, you know, if you're an SF ODA with your indig, you're not using radio communications. You were putting up VS-17 panel on the outside to... Yeah. To, to mark that a room was clear, that a building was clear, the pilots being told like, "Hey, turn your GPS off. You don't, you don't get to use it for this airdrop." You know, and yeah. at, uh, you know, uh, you know, Tier, I know you can appreciate the idea of jumping out, you know, doing a mass pack with no GPS. That's a that's a terrifying. Uh, I know, actually can't appreciate doing a mass pack at all, but. <laughs> But yeah. it's one of those things, though, even, you know, Nolan, I think that you and I both walked away from that. And you've, you've covered a lot of other exercises like, like that over in Europe, where, man, the U.S. military is even, they're, they're saying they're training for it, but there's still a lot of things that they're not doing where we're not quite taking the training wheels off yet when it comes to preparing for this sort of hybrid warfare. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think, go ahead. It, well, I mean, uh, you know, I'll just throw it to you, but it really begs the question with Russia having the military prowess that they do, how is Ukraine able to stand up to this, being such a small country with such a smaller force? Yes. So Ukraine's military over the last seven years has massively improved. But even though it has gotten a lot strong, we actually, we have Americans in Ukraine. We've had them since 2015 training Ukrainians at a base in Western Ukraine. And that training has mainly been to help the Ukrainians uh, evolve out of this like Soviet mindset as far as chain of command, right? Like in the U.S. military, we, we empower frontline soldiers, pilots to make decisions in combat, you know, in a way that some generals sitting, you know, a couple hundred miles from the front line wouldn't be able to do real time. And the Soviet chain of command, it was like, you know, you do what the general tells you to do, no questions asked. So we've really helped Ukrainians get away from that and have a much more like agile uh, sort of combat flexible force. And that's been a huge help to them. But as far as like a direct matchup with China, all right, excuse me, Russia, you know, there's really no contest. I think Russia would, would easily uh, take Ukrainian territory and invade the country. I think Ukrainians sort of, you know, their secret weapons, so to speak, is that what I just described, like that grassroots war effort in 20, 2014, it showed that the Ukrainian people are willing to fight. And so for the last seven years, Ukraine has built up this network, of what they call territorial defense units. And there's basically a pre-positioned setup. It's like the re resistance operating concept, which I know you guys in special forces are really <laughs> familiar with, but it's that concept here, you know, to a team, man. It's like they are ready to wage a guerrilla war behind the front lines of a Russian invasion. 
You know, they're studying shit that AQI did in Iraq. They're studying these insurgency tactics, and that's how they want to get back at Russia if they were to invade. And so I think Russia, you know, they know that they could win that offensive to take Ukrainian land. But are they ready to be bled dry by a pretty, pretty hardcore, ready to fight guerrilla resistance movement in Ukraine? I think that Russia knows that, you know, they're not ready for that kind of fight. And I think that's a major deterrent against Russia uh, escalating the war to the point of a conventional invasion. I know some of this would be speculation, but how much of that do you think is um, that hesitancy to do just a full blown invasion is uh, is lessons learned from uh, Afghanistan? Yeah, I think that certainly plays a part in the rush. I mean, and I think, you know, it's not just their experience in the 80s, right? But they've seen what happened to us in Iraq and Afghanistan too, in Vietnam and you know, it's really easy to start a war. There's a actually, this is a quote from a, a Ukrainian Afghanistan veteran. He served in the Soviet army, and he's out there right now fighting the Russians. Some of his own, by the way, some of his own comrades in arms from Afghanistan. He's now fighting against them in the Donbas. He said it's really easy to start a war, but really hard to finish one. And so I think that you know we learned that lesson. All of us spent our youths <laughs> fighting a war that was really hard to win. And I think that you know Russia understands that. You, know, you break it, you own it. And if they invade Ukraine, they're going to be up for a hell of a fight that's not going to be over very quickly. Also, I, you know, you have to wonder what Putin's overall objective would be to actually, you know, invade Ukraine outright. I think right now, Russia mainly just wants to kind of make the case, probably more so to the Russian people, that Ukraine made a mistake by turning this back on Russia and toward the West. I think, you know, Putin's one of his big concerns is to prevent sort of the westernization of Russia. And so I think for him, Ukraine is a front line to prevent that from happening. Yeah, it kind of seems like an egotistical conflict right. fought by Putin that he just wants to like maintain. He's like pissed at this thing that they left what was previously in control. And it, it makes me wonder, is there any sort of uprising in Russia specifically from people who are protesting this conflict happening? I think the the resistance to what Putin has done in Ukraine is pretty subdued. I think uh, like my wife is Ukrainian and through her social network, she's friends with a lot of Uk- uh, Russians. Half her family lives in Russia. So she's pretty plugged into how Russians feel about this. And most of them, they understand Russia's propaganda BS, right? They know it's mostly lies. Russia portrays the war here as a civil war. They still deny the fact that Russian troops have ever fought in Ukraine, even though there's massive amounts of evidence. I mean, the fact that the Malaysian airliner 777 was shot down by a Russian surface air missile killing 298 people. And that's evidence enough that Russia is openly fighting this conflict, right? And Russia is party to all the peace negotiations. So it's, I mean, it's, it's an outright lie. Most Russians understand that. But Putin's security apparatus in Russia is it's iron tight. And so a lot of young Russians, you know, when they have the choice, I think most of them would just rather try and leave the country rather than go out there and face the wrath of Putin on the streets to right. overthrow him. I think one lesson from the Ukrainian revolution, which ended very bloodily, I mean, more than 100 protesters were gunned down in the final few days, many of whom by snipers that were most likely Russian uh, special forces brought into Ukraine. Yeah, the the revolution here ended badly. And so I think many Russians understand that the same thing will await them if they try and overthrow Putin. Um, But I do think one interesting 
that's in development in the last few days is Navalny, Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader whose health is failing in a, uh, a penal colony, a, a prison in, in Russia. Um, there's a lot of his, a lot of his supporters have gone out in the streets across Russia to, to protest and call for his release. And so there is definitely some pressure on Putin's regime, on the Kremlin, uh, to release Navalny, to make some, you know, to create reforms, maybe for Putin to not be president at some point in the next century. Um, and I think that there is resistance within Russia, but I think there's a lot of fear among the Russian people about trying to replicate what Ukraine did in having a pro-Western revolution. Is his health failing because he of his hunger strike, or do you, is there something else going on there? It was a hunger strike. Well, you know, he was still recovering from being poisoned, poisoned with a nerve agent, a Soviet right. nerve agent. <laughs> which, you know, the reason he was arrested, by the way, when he came back to Russia, was they had to evacuate him to Germany after being poisoned. And apparently, by going to Germany for life-saving medical treatment, he violated the terms of his parole. And he was had been he was on parole for some. You know, just totally BS embezzlement charge that uh, Moscow would come up with to try and silence him. But by going to Germany to save his life at a hospital, uh, he had allegedly violated his parole. And so he was arrested as soon as he set foot back on Russian soil. And uh, yeah, so he went on a hunger, hunger strike to protest what he said was torture in the Russian prison. And you know, I think it's what he went through is pretty much what we went through in Syria, right? Just keeping you up all night, playing loud music playing Yoko Ono songs over and over again, keeping you awake. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so he went on a hunger strike to protest that and uh, his body started shutting down. I imagine probably related to, you know, what he went through surviving a nerve agent attack not too long ago. Do you think uh, that Putin will be receptive to the uh, the public calls to, to release him? I don't think so at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, that's that's not his modus operandi. If you want to call yeah, it that, not, right? He's all about really showing the Putin strength. style, and so I think uh, he'll he'll keep a hard line on uh, on Navalny, and I think that you know for the time being, without a doubt, you know Russians are very afraid of going out there and showing their face and standing up to the Putin regime, and he you know he still enjoys pretty widespread popularity among a certain age group. I think probably about you start getting like. About age 40 on down, people have exposure to social media, to, you know, they watch American movies. I mean, they're just as plugged into the world media sphere as we are on the internet. And so they understand that most of the stuff coming out of the Kremlin is is, is a lie. But the older crowd, the 40 plus people, people who can remember life in the Soviet Union, you know, a lot of them are kind of nostalgic about the Soviet era. Uh, after, you know, after this fall, the Soviet Union life in Russia was pretty rough for a while. And so a lot of them kind of blame sort of their decline in living standards on the transition to democracy. So Putin does have a pretty steady base of support among people who long for the Soviet years. And I think that'll be a, that'll be hard to crack. I think it's a generational thing. And given enough time, the Russian youth will mature and Russia will definitely change to be a more friendly country than the United States. But so long as that Soviet legacy lives on, I think uh, we're definitely going to have an adversary in Russia. Is well, there a Russian term for millennial? For what? For millennial. Millennial? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they call it a millennial, man, just like us. <laughs> so you bring up Russian propaganda and the effect it has on, you know, the Russian people. Um, 
I think for a lot of people, especially listening to this, when they think Russia, they think about allegations that were thrown around about election tampering in the U.S. They think about um, the different, you know, most recently the New York Times story about, uh, you know, Russian bounties in Afghanistan where that intelligence turned out to be not as credible as it was made out to be. There's a totally different lens, a very American lens that we view Russia through. But Russia is very adept propaganda and propaganda operations. You know, some might say that they're some of the best in the world at it, right? Because of their KGB days. Um, can you talk a little bit, some of those like gray zone tactics that they use and some of the the best practices, for lack of a better term, that they use in countries around the world to kind of shape how they're viewed and and keep them themselves in power, essentially? Yeah. And I'll, like, I'll, I'll definitely answer that question, but I'll start off with an anecdote from the war zone. This is a... <laughs> pretty telling story about how powerful Russian propaganda is. So this is back in 2014, right, when the war was starting and Ukraine was taking back territory. I was talking about that grassroots war effort. So Ukraine was taking back land. And I went to visit a a city in eastern Ukraine called Slavyansk. Right outside of Slavyansk, there's a a village called Semyonovka. And I got there just a few days after the Ukrainians had retaken it. And it had been a pretty hardcore battle. I mean, the place looked like a photograph of Hiroshima, right? Just constant. It looked like it just got shelled to oblivion. The ground looked like the surface of the moon or something. Um, but I went out that day and talked to the handful of civilians who had stayed there and survived the battle. And they had all hidden in their, their basements during the fighting uh, to survive it. And I would ask these civilians who were out there, you know, with wheelbarrows, carting away whatever is left at their homes. I'd ask them, who did this? Who destroyed your home? Who came here and did this? this who was responsible for this destruction? And some of them would say the Ukrainians did it. And some of them would blame it on Russia. And at the end of the day, I walked up to a family, a man, his wife, their teenage son. And I asked them the same question, who did this? And the dude, the man, the husband, looked me straight in the eyes and he said, the American CIA bomber planes. And I was just, you know, as a pilot, I was like, what? <laughs> I wasn't aware that we were out, you know, my Air Force bros were out carpet bombing the Donbass in their free time. So I asked this guy, he's like, okay, fair enough. Why do you think that it was the American CIA bomber planes who, who came and destroyed your village? And he said that he had seen it on the news. Oh, wow. And when the war began, the first thing that Russia did in eastern Ukraine, you know, the first thing they destroyed were all the TV antennas and the radio antennas. They established complete mind control over the people and they blanketed the place with propaganda to the point that they could corrupt the mind of an eyewitness to, the, to a battle. I mean, this man was there. He was there for the fighting. And, you know, we all, there's the fog of war. I get it. You know, our memories get all weird when we're in high stress situations. But he actually believes that there was a bombing raid by U.S. B-52 bombers rather than an artillery duel over his village. And I think that, you know, that was in the first few weeks of my time in Ukraine. It really showed me just how powerful Russian propaganda is to warp the memories of an eyewitness to, to a battle to the point where he believed a complete fiction rather than what he had actually lived. Um, so, yeah, I think like, one thing we in America... I think fundamentally get wrong about Russia is that we think that war is 
in general, we consider war to be a black or white thing, a binary condition, right? We're at war or we're at peace, conflict or not. Russia thinks that war is a spectrum. They think that, you know, war can encompass a very wide range of situations. And they consider themselves to be at war with us right now. It's not a shooting war, but it is a war. And that war is fought through propaganda, through cyber attacks, through election manipulation, all these different ways, through pernicious influence like RT, Russia Today. I mean, that is a propaganda arm of the Russian government, which is designed to sow discord in America and promote false narratives to weaken our country and bring us down from within. Primarily, Russia's overall goal is to divide us against each other. And so whenever you have a culturally culturally divisive issue in America, you know, over the summer with the Black Lives Matter protests, Russia was playing both sides of that, telling both sides the other was the enemy and trying to amplify the violence and the anger just because they want to create chaos in America. They want to weaken us and bring us down. And so I think that, you know, we need to be aware of that, aware of the fact that, you know, as Americans, our enemies aren't people of the opposite political persuasion. Now, we're being hoodwinked, we're being glamored into hating each other by a foreign power right now. And I think that we need to be more aware of that and realize that we are already in a war. And just like the Ukrainians are training their territorial defense battalions to wage a guerrilla war against Russia in the real sense of a kinetic fight, we need to train our civilians to wage a guerrilla war on the propaganda front, on the information front, to be able to resist what Russia is doing to try and bring our country down. So if you're if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're driving on your way to work and you hear this and you you just hear that you you are the target of Russian propaganda and everything that's been an inflammatory point over the last say couple months has been has been twisted somehow to to manipulate you. What do you tell that person? What 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 can they do? What, what, what's something they can do to take control of that information, their own actions, their feelings? Read Coffee or Die magazine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> Use Smedge 15 for 15% off your first purchase. Yeah, that's, that's a professional plug right there. <laughs> yeah. That was amazing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's about education. I mean, I... You know, it it seems like sort of a cop-out answer, but I think, you know, like one thing they do here in Ukraine, right? And it's kind of a sign of the times, but when kids are in high school, they take them out to the woods and they teach them how to shoot. They teach them how to make tank traps. They teach them how to have survival skills, right? They teach them these skills because if there is a Russian invasion, these kids are going to need to have these skills to defend their country. Why don't we... Start training kids in high school to not train them to, you know, gravitate towards any certain news sites, but we need to train people to be more educated consumers of news, to to look for different sources. If you see some crazy news on the internet, you know, don't take it at face value. Do some research, verify it with other news outlets. I think that you know, we're such passive consumers of news. I think that that is a, a real downfall to us because we're so easily preyed upon uh, by Russian spin masters, you know, mm-hmm. the propaganda machine and social media too. I mean, it, you know, they purposely put in front of your eyeballs every day things that they think will appeal to you emotionally. So it's like this double whammy of 
you know, very savvy propaganda from Russia, as well as China, Iran. I mean, all these, all of our adversaries are playing the game. And the fact that the social media giants know that they get more clicks, they get us online, more, you know, for a longer duration every day. If they're feeding things that they think will kind of, you know, spark our emotions or get us angry. So I think it's just right now, it's just this vicious cycle. And I think it's going to take reforms in social media. And I think it's going to take sort of the American people uh, an awakening among us to the fact that we have to act in, in discerning about what information we choose to believe and what we choose to discard. And Tier, I think that this is like an interesting juncture to bring in, you know, Nolan is talking about all this stuff from the perspective of an American living in Ukraine and, and witnessing a lot of this stuff firsthand and looking through a lens that just most Americans don't have. You're a guy who has spent a career in Army Special Forces, the, the premier you know, unconventional warfare experts. How much of what Nolan is saying matches up with your knowledge of the unconventional warfare environment? All of it, 100%. Mm-hmm. I mean, for obvious reasons, I'm not going to speak to Ukraine-specific uh, just because I, I've got a little inside knowledge there that I don't think uh, I'm authorized to talk about, but uh, 100%. I mean, the what we've done in Afghanistan for the last 20 years yep. is not actually unconventional warfare. That's not a near-peer environment. That's That's going to a developing nation that seems to have been developing for a couple thousand years now. And, and that's, that's an away game. What, what has turned in, and forgive me if I go down a rabbit hole a little bit here, but what turned into uh, a pretty direct objective to take out a dude that coordinated attacks on, on our home soil um, turned into uh, some nation building, but other adversaries went and said, hey, we can, they bled us slowly in Afghanistan. We can bleed them slowly there. And now we're playing an away game. We're playing an away game in Afghanistan, and it's, it's not—it's not necessarily Afghans we're fighting there. You know, it's it, there's other okay. people pulling the strings for for fighters there. If it was Afghans we were fighting, Afghans would be winning. Right. Yeah, and I think that's—I mean, you know, whether the allegations of Russia paying Taliban to you know, commit hits on U.S. soldiers proves true or not. I mean, it's an established fact that Russia is supporting the Taliban. You know, whether they want the Taliban to kill Americans or not, Russia is on the side of the Taliban. You know, and sort of the line from Moscow is, you know, they want stability in Afghanistan. And they are pretty much cashing in their chips saying, well, we think Taliban is going to take over as the minute America leaves. So we might as well make good with the winning side. Right. So I think that, you know, whether or not that true story proves true. There's no doubt that Russia is on the side of our enemy in Afghanistan. But with the introduction of ISIS in Afghanistan too, you know, it gets really complicated because the enemy of our enemies or friend, maybe, yeah. I don't know. It's, you know, we've yeah. all spent a lot of time in that country. We know how complicated it is, but you're right. Like Afghanistan is just like the ultimate intersection of interests from around the world. China, Russia, India, Pakistan, you name it. They're, they're all there. Iran. I don't I don't think the average American realizes that Af- Afghanistan actually shares a border with China. I mean, it's when only I, 70 kilometers and it's pretty yeah. mountainous, but it does border China. Uh, when yeah. I flew, the last time I flew into Kabul, um, the plane, the, the United, uh, the Emirates fucking 747 or whatever it was that I was on was half Chinese people. 
like yeah. Chinese executives. Like, right. Yeah, it's the same way when I went there for my embed, man, they're all Chinese on the airplane. <laughs> there was um, the kind of the big news that was there the last time, which was, you know, this is three years dated now, but the big news was, hey, the Afghanistan was going to have 5G cell towers before America does because the Chinese were bringing them there. And it was kind of this huge, like, oh, the Afghans are going to have 5G before us. How does, you know, like it just showed the level of investment that China had there. And as I mean, as we're kind of making our way to this point, um, you know, you look at not uh, Chinese, you know, the other, the other near peer threat, right. That we just happen to have much closer economic ties to uh, than we do Russia. It's more of a, I think it's definitely an adversary, right. It's just, we're in bed with our adversary to it to a certain degree. But you look at what the Chinese are doing in Afghanistan, you look at Chinese investment in the entire continent of Africa, um, and then the Chinese moves that are happening in the Western Pacific, there's a lot of interesting things going on on that end. And, you know, Nolan, I I love to point out like how you have a penchant for pissing off world powers. Uh, Not only are you not allowed in Russia, you're not allowed in China because you were embedded with what? Tibetan uh, uh, guerrillas, right? Yeah, so 2015, I went... So long story, but during the Cold War, the CIA trained Tibetan freedom fighters, Tibetan guerrillas to wage an insurgency against occupying Chinese forces in Tibet. We took these Tibetan soldiers, took them to Camp Hale in Colorado, trained them to be paratroopers. And we flew out of Bangladesh using old World War II uh, airplanes at first, C-130s later on, and uh, basically dropped a bunch of Tibetan guerrillas into Tibet to fight the Chinese. Uh, eventually, the Tibetan resistance movement um, was defeated, and the veterans of that that insurgency they moved back into living little villages in the Himalayas and in uh, India and Nepal. And so I went out there in 2015. And I wandered the Himalayas for a couple months and found these Tibetan soldiers who had fought and been trained by the CIA and just sort of you know committed their stories to to pen and paper. But really fascinating, and I think you know just. After having spent a lot of time with the Kurds, like I know Marty, you have, and spending a ton of time with the Ukrainians and the Tibetans, and you just you see this very common through line of these these people who love freedom and they hate dictatorships, and they look to our country as this beacon of what they want in this life, and you know whether they don't need a whole lot of support, but they just want that spiritual support from us to go out there and push back against countries that are our enemies. And it really made an impression on me, but uh, but yeah, I think uh, I have a a nice distinction of being, you know, persona non grata in Russia and China. I think I'm also one of the few people who's been shot at by Russians, Al Qaeda, ISIS, Taliban. <laughs> you name it. <laughs> it's a great resume, buddy. Yeah. yeah. So, Noah, what do you what do you think if you had to make some predictions as far as what's going to happen between? Ukraine and Russian conflict over the course of the next 12 months, what do you potentially see playing out over there? I think like right now, I think it's, we should keep an eye on Belarus, which has a the Northern border of Ukraine is with Belarus. And um, there's been a lot of conversations between Lukashenko, the president of Belarus and Putin. Lukashenko just flew to Moscow yesterday to talk to Putin and there's been a long-term discussion between Russia and Belarus about actually incorporating the two countries into one union, sort of like a very smaller, small version of the Soviet Union redux, right? Hmm. And so I think there might be some sort of uh, tightening of relations with Belarus and Russia, which would be a huge problem for NATO because 
Belarus borders NATO countries. And I'm, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with the Milwaukee Gap, which is that very narrow uh, corridor of land between Kaliningrad, which is a Russian exclave on the Baltic Sea, and Belarus. And it's like this very narrow strip of land is the only land corridor linking Poland with Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, which are three NATO countries. So if, you know, Russians went through Belarus and then they came in from Kaliningrad, they could seal that off and basically cut off three NATO countries from the rest of the alliance. So there's a huge worry that, you know, what's going on right now in Ukraine could in fact be sort of a smokescreen for Russia making a move mm. to either incorporate Belarus or establish some sort of military partnership where they can move a ton of military hardware, Russian military hardware into the country, which would pose a huge threat uh, to NATO. Yeah, I, you know, right now, it, although yesterday it looked like things really kind of scaled back, Russia announced, you know, so for the last few weeks, Russia has been mass, massing tens of thousands of troops on Ukraine's border, moving in, Lots of hardware. We're talking about tanks, electronic warfare system, rockets, missiles, you name it. It really looked like a very offensive military posture around Ukraine that was building. U.S. said Russia had gotten to about 80,000 troops on the border. The EU said 150,000. Ukraine was staying over 100,000. So basically a lot of troops, enough to make a, you know, create problems. Yeah. Uh, yesterday, um, Shoigu, who is the defense minister of Russia, announced that Russia was pulling back some of its forces from Crimea, the Ukrainian peninsula that Russia invaded in 2014. So it kind of looks like things diffused a little bit. But as part of that, of that pullback, Russia is leaving a lot of its military hardware that it had deployed, and it's leaving a lot of troops too. So basically, you know, it's, it's a hell of a lot easier to move a bunch of troops overnight to someplace if you don't have to worry about also moving in tanks and armored personnel carriers and all that stuff behind it. So all that shit is now in place and ready to rock so they can move troops in pretty quick. So I think like sort of the baseline threat to Ukraine of a Russian invasion has gone up uh, significantly because Russia has more assets poised now on Ukraine's border to, put, to pose a threat. So I think, you know, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to tell. I think that at some point, just like the war in Afghanistan has to end at some point, you know, the war in eastern Ukraine at some point has to end. But I think as it stands now, there's no military solution for Ukraine because if they were to try to retake that parcel of land by force, it would almost certainly invite Russia to outright invade the eastern part of Ukraine, which would be a you know an epic catastrophe on the scale of you know something we haven't seen since the 1940s. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. It's I think it just, you know, the status quo continues for the next year, but I think that uh, things have certainly got more dangerous now. And I think, you know, one analogy I kind of use sometimes to talk about Ukraine, it's almost like two tectonic plates up against each other and they're just building all that pressure and all that pressure. And at some point shit's going to slide, man. And it just, it's going to break, you know, it's going to be like, like I said, again, that Franz Ferdinand scenario that could spark a much bigger war. And I think that that's something uh, we really need to be aware of, afraid of. With with those NATO countries that you were talking about uh, earlier, um, what's what's the consequence if if Russia makes a move on any of those, or really any any NATO country? I mean, I know what the treaty says, but I also heard a, a U.S. president draw a line in the sand that nothing happened there <laughs> either. So, what's what's the consequence? 
Yeah, well, under Article 5 of the NATO Charter, if one country is attacked, in theory, the rest of the alliance will respond in kind and to defend that country, which means if Russia were to attack Estonia, the United States conceivably would be obligated by the NATO treaty to go to war with Russia to defend Estonia, which is, I think, one perhaps you know, long-term goal of Putin would be to try to do some sort of gray zone assault on a, on a city in Estonia, right? To seize, you know, there's Ukrainian or there's Estonian towns right on the border with Russia. Take one of those and just see what NATO does. And well, I don't know. I don't think America really is in the mood to go to war with Russia. A normal no, war that would probably end up with a nuclear exchange over a town in Estonia, right? And so I right. think that Putin could essentially, you know, nullify the NATO alliance by doing something like that. I, yeah, I, I think something going on right now that has kind of been overwhelmed by you know the the news about you know the George Floyd trial and all that has been these these sabotage bombings in the Czech Republic and Bulgaria, which were most likely prosecuted by Russian GRU agents. And these countries are saying that Russian you know security agents came in their countries, blew up ammunition dumps, and these ammunition dumps were going to be providing. Uh, ammunition to Ukraine in the early days of the war. So Russia, trying to prevent Ukraine from getting more more weapons, more ammunition, went to NATO countries and started blowing up ammunition depots using terror. I mean, terrorist attacks. And I, I think it's important to remember, like the only time NATO ever declared Article Five was during a terrorist attack on 9/11. So in theory, you know, we could. I think by the letter of the law, Article 5 could be invoked right now because Russia committed terrorism against uh, Czech Republic and Bulgaria. So I, you know, I just, I think, you know, a lot of people just assume that something like World War II is, you know, in the history books and it could never possibly happen again. And it just, you know, you're being hyperbolic, you're being alarmist if you start talking about these things, but you know, there's still people, like World War II is the deadliest war in human history. And there's still people alive today. My grandma, she's 96 years old, she's still alive. She was alive during that time. And to think that it couldn't happen again, I think it's just, it's just, you know, idiocy to think that we're beyond that. And I think that, we, you know, every day I just feel like the snowball is building momentum. You see stuff in Taiwan, the Arctic, and Ukraine, and just all these flashpoints right now that really could spark a major war. And I think, um, we need to take that seriously because if we get it wrong, we could end up sort of finding ourselves in a just a catastrophically horrible situation. So, I mean, I really want to like focus on that. Like, the, you know, as far as like the so what there, if if Russia or Putin specifically wanted to move that chess piece with Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and make the NATO countries force them to either say, Yes, we're going to effectively start World War III because Article Five bind. You know, we are bound by Article Five uh, to honor that and, and essentially enter into the next World War. Or say, no, we're not going to. And, and the stuff with the, the ammunition bombings right now, it's like, okay, it's not outright. If, if so, it's like giving NATO a little bit of deniability, right? It's not forcing their hand like a land incursion. Uh, you know, with a, you know one of those three Baltic states. Um, if we said, okay, we're not going to go to war, we basically nullify fucking NATO, which right. that's a man. Okay. We're, we're all saying now we're all, it's every, it's every man for himself. 
that's a scary place to be in the world. Right. It's kind of an aha moment right there. Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a great point because I think one of the most destabilizing things is, you know, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014, the countries with the most rapidly expanding military budgets on earth were Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland, right? All these countries, NATO countries on the periphery with Russia, and they all feel an existential threat from Russia that people in Germany and France just don't get, or Americans just don't understand. And I think Marty brings up a good point, which is if these countries at some point feel like NATO doesn't have their back, does that make them more inclined to sort of freelance their national security and maybe align in some sort of middle way alliance? You know, just like Ukraine and Turkey right now have built sort of an alliance apart from any other classical structure of alliances where, you know, they're exchanging drone parts. Turkey is selling Ukraine some of those drones that were very, very effective in the Nagorno-Karabakh war. Like, there's all these sort of alliances of, of convenience going on right now. And I think that that kind of sets Europe up for a situation very similar to World War One. We have all these like these complicated webs of alliances, and that just makes things really complicated because an attack on one country could just spiral out of control into something that brings in the whole continent. And so I think that, yeah, we need to make sure that people believe in NATO because then they won't be prone to go out there and do things on their own, which could inadvertently create a much bigger war. And I think a lot of people who think, you know, the, to Cheers' point about, you know, the Americans that think that this is all hyperbolic and, you know, that just World War Three. I think there's a lot of people that don't think World War Three is impossible, that they just think it's not going to happen in their lifetime or it's not going to happen right now or whatever. There's yeah. not, I think everybody's waiting for that big Pearl Harbor moment, right? That big, that big moment. But in reality, most wars throughout human history were sparked with much less. It's never, it's almost never the big fucking gasoline on the fire moment. It's always like that, that match strike. You know, um, and I think that's where when you talk about kind of these little micro events uh, that are happening in different places, any one of those things could be that first domino that that flips over. And so, yeah, it's not like everybody should be like living in fear every day, right? Like, I don't think that where anybody is propagating like, hey, you know, bunker down in your basement and don't leave. Like, I don't think anybody's saying that, but it is just recognizing like, hey, it's a potentially super volatile situation right now. And you should at least be open to the idea that life as you know it right now may not necessarily continue as status quo for the next 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, and it's tough for the American people. I mean, obviously the wars in Afghanistan were not an equally shared burden among the Ukraine of the United States population, right? But, you know, there's this talk about winding down in Afghanistan and all this stuff. But I think it almost, in a way, kind of brings our guard down and allows us to have this exhalation moment where we don't realize that we are now in a much, much more dangerous situation than we ever faced in the war against terrorism, because we actually face now, you know, an existential threat that Russia, you know, Russia has more nuclear weapons than we do. And they have, and they can all, they can hit our shores, you know, they've, Russia's developing, you know, torpedoes that will create tsunamis that could wipe out cities on the Eastern seaboard, you know, like, like this is the the real deal, and I think that we need to take it seriously. Otherwise, we will be caught off guard. And like the classic thing is like, oh, we could totally beat Russia, right? Like, and it's like, okay, yeah, maybe we could, but at what cost? With a lot of bodies. What, what, what does a post yeah, like exactly. if we're victorious over any country on earth? I, I would, you know, definitely propagate that we 
would ultimately be victorious, but at what cost and what does victory look like after something like that? You know? Yeah. And like, and there's a lot of questions too. I mean, like, like we have, I mean, for example, here's a good sort of example of this, but like F-35s, F-22s, you know, very, you know, F-22s in particular, much better than F-35s, but very combat capable aircraft, really they have no peer among our adversaries. But for an F-22 to actually do any damage to China, they're going to have to rely upon a non-stealth tanker to get enough fuel to get to Chinese airspace. And while they're refueling in some orbit, you know, off the Chinese mainland, they're going to be susceptible to Chinese missiles. So some of our high-tech Gucci gear doesn't, you know, we didn't think about the fact, we didn't plan out how we're going to use that in an actual war against the near-peer adversary. And so I think like what I was talking about earlier is we need to think about how there's a wide spectrum of solutions to fighting these wars, and they don't always rely on some $100 billion Pentagon program for AI or hypersonic missiles or something. You know, I think even in Taiwan right now, there's I've seen some talk about the resistance operating concept of training Taiwanese local forces to wage a guerrilla war if China were to invade. I think we need to think about that unconventional warfare aspect as a way to to deter adversaries from overstepping our red lines uh, in a way that doesn't rely exclusively on technology. God, what a shitty time to be a grunt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, think what, about it. I mean, when was it a good time to be a grunt? <laughs> Can you uh, enlighten me on that one there, buddy? <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, all these, like the stay behind forces, everything else, I mean, look at what's, what's really affected informational wars for us. I mean, it's, it's those, it's those 18 to 20 something year olds that are really, and their families that are paying the price for, for these propaganda wars. You can, you can take out one guy or blow off one guy's leg who signed up to serve his country and maybe get some college money. And, and that's an, inf- that's an information win for the enemy. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like you're saying how <clears throat> the, the potential for this thing to happen, like we look at where social media is, where technology is now, how quickly the propaganda machine that is social media could just pour immense amounts of gas on this fire to the point where you have multiple different countries throwing their cards in the mix in Mm -hmm. a very easy way. I don't think people truly understand how easy it is to do propaganda these days. And if you look at what's going on in America right now, it has a profound effect on everybody that is participating in these things. And like you were saying, Nolan, man, if we're we're like poised to pop, if a couple little things happen. It's a big pimple. It's yeah. <laughs> when, when you talk about this stuff and, and you know, being more um, resistant to propaganda and everything, I think a lot of people right now, they're, uh, as we're talking about, you know, they're drawn to the things that either make them feel good or feel angry. And um, I think that there needs to be just like any drug out there or, um, you know, it, it might make you feel really good. You should really distrust that whatever is making you feel really good or getting you jazzed. Yeah. Like yeah. that you should immediately be like, okay, what's the catch here? You know? And I think if people thought that way about the news more and embraced more like, hey, this doesn't align with my personal beliefs, maybe I need to expand that. And, and this is a, kind of a cheap segue into what we are trying to do at Coffee or Die, which is, you know, one, I think that we are, because of Nolan, probably one of the best resources out there right now. Uh, on what's going on between Ukraine and Russia and the larger kind of geopolitical uh, gamesmanship that's that's going on. Um, and also, 
you know, we don't really have a lot of, uh, we don't have a lot of allegiances as far as, um, you know, one political party over another or anything like that, as far as our coverage is concerned. We're, we're kind of going for this classic journalism. And I'm always careful to, you know, use rose-colored glasses for um, when it comes to journalism or the news or whatever. A lot of people remember like, oh, back in the day when they didn't have any editorialization or anything like that. Like, ah. I went back and reviewed, you know, the classic, uh, you know, <laughs> CBS Nightly News brought to you by, you know, insert yeah. <laughs> company. Right. Um, you know, it, it, it's like, you know, I, I, I want to be hesitant to have rose-colored glasses there, but I think that there's a need right now for journalism, for news, for information that doesn't have any allegiance to anything but the truth or, or the pursuit of the truth, at least. And it's never been more important. And man, you know, uh, hat tip to Black Rifle Coffee Company for being a fucking coffee company who has absolutely no responsibility whatsoever to shoulder that burden as far as like putting news out of the world, but is rogering up with, you know, money, people, resources to enable what what me and uh, Nolan and the rest of the Coffee Diet team are doing. Where we're trying to actually, you know, inform people uh, w- without, you know, having any regard for their feelings, to be completely honest. Well, it goes back to the principle why we decided to start off your dial those years ago is because we felt like there was a gap in information that was being passed. And just like the overall company in general, as far as wanting to have coffee shipped to you on a regular basis and you can have it any way, shape or form you want it, we wanted a different type of news outlet. And so like, you know, a lot of people say, well, if you want change, change it from within. And it's exactly what it did. And it's been so cool to watch it grow, see the additional writers that we've been able to bring on board because it was just a byproduct of, we wanted to see a different type of factual news basis come out. And obviously other people want to see that too, because it's grown tremendously over the course of the last three years. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, you know, one thing that I know Marty really puts a lot of value on, and I totally subscribe to this, is to actually be present in the places you're reporting on to the maximum extent that you can. And I think there's a huge difference between a journalist sitting in DC Googling Ukraine versus somebody like me who's actually here, who can go out and speak to Ukrainians, can go see the war zone. You know, you you don't get the truth 100% because we're all like that parable of the blind man and the elephant, right? We're all just got one hand on the elephant. We don't really know what we're touching. But to be in a place and to actually be able to report what you observe and what you see adds a hell of a lot more truth to your reporting than if you're getting your news sort of filtered down to you, so to speak, through other outlets, other sources, internet searches, social media, whatever. So I think that I, you know, as a, as a writer and a member of the Coffee or Die team, I really value and I really put a lot of, uh, put a stock and the, the, the importance of being able to observe firsthand the things I'm writing about and to be able to try and as truthfully, as accurately as I can relate that to our readers. Yeah, I mean, it's just to recap even what these last couple of years have looked like. It, it started with, you know, we, we kicked this off with, you know, I went over to Afghanistan with an ODA and that kind of, I feel like set the precedent for like, hey, we're going to do on the ground reporting. And since then, we've gone to Iraq, we've gone to various training exercises around Europe. We've had people on the ground, you know, Nolan in Ukraine right now, we've been on the ground past year for all the civil unrest across the United States and Minneapolis, Portland, Seattle, Washington, DC. We've had people at all of these different flashpoints and it's like, hey, you know, why... 
you know, what we're reporting on maybe jives with what you're seeing with other places. Maybe it doesn't. But overall, it's like, hey, we've got, we're basically putting ourselves in a position to be eyewitnesses to history and try to relay via words as well as photos and video what we're seeing, what we're hearing in the most authentic way we possibly can. And it's not an easy task. I mean, it's, uh, Nolan, we all talked about last week, right? With all the editors, we're like, man, we're working some fucking hours. <laughs> like, it's not easy. We're, we're a scrappy team, you know? But I think everybody is super invested in this idea that uh, not only can we do it, we can do it better than everybody else. Absolutely. Well, guys, thanks for catching us up. And um, Marty, you want to communicate where everybody can get more coffee or die information? Yeah. So, uh, as I just kind of went off on a tangent there, we're doing some really cool stuff. Um, great story, great news, also some really great human interest stories and um, just a, a lot of great stuff coming out of Coffee or Die. You can find that at coffeeordie.com. Um, we've also got a sister publication now called freerangeamerican.us. Um, a lot of great stories coming out over there. Um, and you know, this is you're listening to the Free Range American podcast. I would encourage everybody to go read freerangeamerican.us. Uh, a lot of the articles that are going on uh, up there are top fucking top tier. Um, you know, even better than the tier we've got right here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not better than his mustache though. Um, but um, so yeah, you can find those both places, but uh, really exciting news in July, we're launching a print magazine um, for Coffee or Die. And uh, that's really exciting. Um, we've got a lot of great stories. Uh, the cover story, I'm excited to announce. We got an inside look at the very first Marine Corps recon sniper course. Um, and, you know, cl- literally cl- the pilot course, class 001, we, we had a front row seat for the whole thing. So um, it's going to be a great story. We got a lot of other great stories that are going to go into that. That's set to drop on July 1st. Um, so everybody should definitely be keeping an eye out for that. And uh, you know, while we're plugging things... Um, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Owen Peterson's got a book here. Oh, uh, why soldiers miss war. If you've heard a little bit about his adventures in this podcast, um, Tibet, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, he's ran a, a marathon in Antarctica that he trained for in Iraq. Um, he's done a lot of really cool stuff. We were actually both on Mount Kilimanjaro at the same time, just different sides of the mountain. Um, He's done a lot of really cool stuff. He's got a lot of those adventures in that book. And I definitely uh, encourage people to, to pick that bad boy up too. It's uh, it's some good reading. And check out the daily newsletter where oh. you can funnel all <laughs> of this information. Basically, uh, we figured out a way that we needed to have all of this media come out in one condensed source. So we did a daily newsletter called... Uh, the Daily Press Check. I don't know who came up with that, but it was a good idea. And you can sign up for that right on coffeeordie.com. So do that. And we're going to cut it off. Bye, fellas. Stay safe, Nolan. Later. Yes. <laughs>